It's on the first two. I guess I'm not hearing, and help, help me again, am I hearing that there is a plan either from ARPA or this budget for that cliff when those benefits go down or families are gone? They're, they're, they're no longer eligible, not for reasons of immigration status, but because income's slightly above, but they're still struggling with food. Is there a follow-up food program or investment coming, or are you waiting to see? I guess I'm just trying to see what our plan is for post-cliff. Yeah, there is not anything within the DHS budget to help address that cliff uh, whenever it strikes. Uh, what we are doing is working more closely with other departments who have uh, food security programs such as uh, Department of Public Health and Environment and Children's Affairs uh, to better coordinate and align uh, food security programs. Did you want to add anything, Stephanie, or? Point out that um, public health. Oh, can't hear you, Stephanie. <laughs> oh, you can keep talking. I just couldn't hear. Sorry. That's okay. Um, I think what Stephanie was going to say is that uh, there's six million dollars in the round two ARPA funding for food support that you'll be hearing about from DDPHE when they're here. I gotcha. So there's another agency with new funding for during 2023. Right. Okay, that's reassuring. I guess I just ask that you all keep an eye on opportunities. If this fund balance stays higher than we need it to to maintain cash flow, I would hate for us to see you know historic needs going unmet while there's a large reserve that could right. potentially you know. So just let's can we? I hope we can commit to staying and in touch with whether more is needed and this is a possible source. Um, if I could just add something uh, that I think we all need to be watching for is the potential for a recession and what impacts that might have on demand for services as well. In, in terms of trying to keep the reserve higher for meeting those needs later? Which uh, the, the reserves can be impacted by a drop in property, ta or property values, which in turn can affect our uh, local revenue source. Do we have any other council members with any last questions? Welcome to the Safety, Housing, Education, and Homelessness Committee of Denver City Council. The Safety, Housing, Education, and Homelessness Committee begins now. Good morning. Welcome to the City Council Safety, Housing, Education, and Homelessness Committee. I'm your chair, Councilwoman Robin Kniech. I'm an at-large member of the council. Um, do we have any members online to introduce themselves? We do not, so we will start here in the chambers. Thank you. Uh, Kevin Flynn, Southwest Denver's District 2. Good morning, Stacy Gilmore, District 11. Uh, good morning, all. Paul Cashman, South Denver, District 6. Jamie Torres, District 3. Good morning, Amanda Sawyer, all the way down here by myself, <laughs> District 5. Excellent. Before we begin this morning, I just want to remind folks that our next week's meeting, March 1st, we have the second in a series of special committee meetings where we will be um, hosting a panel of individuals with lived experience um, living in recovery with substance misuse disorders. And that will be held in the Par Widener Room, which is the third floor law library here in this building. It will be available on Channel 8, just like all of our committee meetings. 
reminder that our first um, session was uh, those uh, physicians who specialize in um, substance misuse disorders, and they really talked with us about the medical condition and how uh, this is a treatable uh, condition and how substance misuse works in our bodies. And then this is the people living in recovery and the hope that they can provide to us that um, this is something that's treatable and people live and recover every day from substance misuse. Um, so please join us next week. Um, and we hope that our community will tune in and really learn about living in recovery and supporting those in our community who are, are living in recovery. So that's next Monday or next Wednesday, March 1st. Um, today we have three action items. Our first item is um, the acceptance of a Department of Justice grant. We have Matt uh, Lund from the Denver Police Department here to present. So please come on up. This is action item um, 23-106. And uh, please uh, introduce yourself, anyone else from your team that you need to introduce and uh, take it away. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Madam Chair, Madam President, members of council. Um, I will be talking alone today about this, but you get me uh, in round two today as well, so some of the other folks from Staples or community partners. Uh, this first item is the Edward Byrne Memorial Justice Assistant Grant. Um, worth noting, uh, yesterday would have been Officer Byrne's 57th birthday had he not been murdered uh, in 1988 while working as a New York City police officer. So um, I wanted to mention that. Uh, this is resolution 23106. Uh, it approves the grant agreement with the Department of Justice and the Bureau of Justice Assistance in the amount of $512,118. Um, and the grant covers a number of things for the department, uh, includes um, a partial payment of our shot spotter contract uh, that the city approved last year, um, funding for programs with the district attorney's office, um, uh, loan restitution, uh, and uh, a free license plate screen program that's been very popular that we've been doing for the last couple of years in the districts. Uh, the largest uh, item that's funded through this grant, like I said, is the shot spotter, uh, a partial payment of the shot spotter contract. Uh, you'll see the data on the left um, showing the need for shot spotter. You'll see the alerts for the last four years, um, how they've been increasing year over year. Um, and more importantly is that data point below it, which shows these shot spotter incidents where these shell cases are recovered and they're linked to other cases within the NIBE system. So they're forensically linked to other cases, which help us hold individuals accountable for these um, violent crimes in our community. Um, also worth noting is uh, the last four-year average, uh, just over 87% of all shot spotter alerts, confirmed shot spotter alerts for gunfire, do not have a correlating 911 call. So people are not calling 911. Um, when they're hearing gunfire. Um, we really need this program uh, to help alert officers so they can respond quickly. We have incidents, and we talked about it last year when the contract was up, where we've saved lives uh, responding rapidly to these incidents. Um, we've recovered evidence that we otherwise wouldn't have access to, um, and we've been able to hold people accountable for these violent crimes in our community. So the amount of this award that goes toward Shot Spotter is your mark is 308,160. Uh, that covers approximately 3.6 square miles of the little over 14 square miles of service that the city currently has. Um, it's important to note that this is not an expansion of ShotSpotter. Um, this is simply one of the revenue streams uh, for paying for the program, paying for our current contract. Um, we will continue to, uh, this grant funding just continues that current coverage model. Um, and this award and the things that are included in the JAG award are consistent year over year. So this is a formulaic grant that we get from the Department of Justice. Um, it's based on population and violent crime numbers. Uh, and so um, this is essentially the breakdown we give every single year. 
Um, another chunk of it goes to uh, personnel costs, mostly for the district attorney's office to support the restitution program. Uh, this is both salary and benefits for two different individuals. And then uh, we write in about 3% on every one of our grants uh, to help cover the cost of us administering the grant program uh, within the police department. And so that's um, 16951 is not someone's salary uh, with the department. It's a, it's, a, it's a percentage of the award that goes to supporting the grant program. Uh, and then finally, what we're funding um, uh, with this award this year, and we found that uh, use this funding the last previous last two years as well, um, is to support these license plate screws. Um, so this is a free service that we provide um, through the uh, patrol district offices um, that allow residents uh, of Denver to come in uh, and get these screws for their car license plates so that they're um, less likely to be stolen, um, which has been an issue uh, the last few years uh, here in Denver and across the state of Colorado. Um, and that certainly most people don't uh, complain about not being able to hear me, so I apologize. <laughs> um, uh, $18,000 of this award goes towards these uh, license plate screws. Um, and so that'll serve uh, about 6,844 residents or uh, that number of vehicles in our community. And with that, I'd like to answer any questions you all might have. We have a full queue. Council Member Sawyer first. Thanks, Madam Chair. Um, thanks, Matt. So just to clarify, mm -hmm. this is the federal government giving us money. Correct. It's, we, um, we have to apply for it, but it's a formula grant. So um, it's not competitive. There are JAG funds that are competitive, um, but this is not one of those awards. Um, this is the main way the Department of Justice helps fund um, local initiatives uh, in policing. Okay, that's good to know. I just <laughs> wanted to make sure I've got that clear. Um, so you said no expansion of ShotSpotter in here. Right. Um, we, ha I have, I'll speak for myself. I have many residents who would love for you guys to expand ShotSpotter um, to their neighborhoods. And in fact, that is a frequent request that we get in District 5 all the time. Mm -hmm. um, so curious whether that is uh, possible. We have been told that because our residents do a really good job of calling 911, we're not a great spot for ShotSpotter because it's really meant for um, for places where people are not going to traditionally historically call 911 based on a lot of different factors. Um, is that true? Uh, no, we, uh, we generally uh, place these uh, sensors in areas where the data shows we have the greatest amount of gun violence. Um, and as we discussed with council last year, uh, when the contract came up, uh, if there is to be an expansion of ShotSpotter, we would have those conversations with council and specifically with uh, the council members whose district it most impacts um, to get their buy-in and feedback uh, on a possible expansion. Okay, really appreciate that. Um, and then the, so the license plate uh, specific mm -hmm. screws that so people can't steal the license plates and use them on other cars, that's mm -hmm. amazing. Um, people in my district love that. So thank you for that. Does this cover the full need for that? Um, it depends. So uh, we use um, multiple funding sources to help supplement this program. And so as we um, have a low stock, uh, if we don't have any more JAG funds available, we look for other ways to help support that program because it is so popular and, um, and there's such a um, uh, positive feedback from our community members on it. Okay, that's great. Um, the other request we receive a lot in our office from residents is a request for um, clubs, right? So that you can put them on your steering wheel to stop people from stealing the car um, or deter people from stealing the car, depending on how you look at it. 
Um, is that something that could potentially be funded like this? And is that something you guys have considered? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, the JAG funds are meant um, to allow for local control for how you spend the money. Um, it, it's a very broad program uh, in that sense. Um, but what I will, so the short answer is yes, we could use JAG funding to cover more clubs um, for vehicles. Uh, but what we're currently using for most of the clubs that we have now is state funding through um, CAPAW, the state's auto theft prevention um, task force. Okay. Uh, they provide grant, uh, state level grant funding and that's one of the things that uh, they support. Okay, really appreciate that. Thanks, yeah. thanks Madam Chair. And if, if uh, just to that point, yeah, if, any, if any of your uh, constituents um, are interested in, in uh, getting a club for the vehicle or uh, some of these license plate screws, each of the patrol districts would be able to help them. Um, they can either call or, or walk in. Okay, thank Great. you. Great, Councilman Flynn. Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, Matt, just to clarify for me on the shot spotter statistics, the second box, the lower one, shot spotter incidents with casings belonging to a Nibin string, mm -hmm. uh, last year, 893. Does, is that telling me that 893 of the total casings that were uh, found at the scenes uh, belonged to an existing uh, identification of the same firearm? That's correct. That this, is, this isn't total casings that were recovered on scene. These are just the 893 is a significant number. Those are just the casings where there's a link to another case in the Nibin system. I'm sorry, say that again. I'm a, That's okay. And speak, um, a little, speak a little more slowly. <clears throat> sure. So the 893 cases right. are specific incidents where we've matched a casing to a previous case Excellent. in the Nibin system. Okay. That's exactly why we have this system. We, we do, uh, otherwise we wouldn't have that forensic uh, information that's an to help link cases. That's an incredible tool. Tell me, do we know how many false positives we've had with ShotSpotter? Um, I can look up the percentage for you and, and you send that, that to, to the members. It's, it's very low, the, uh, the accuracy is in the 90s. Um, and when there are cases that are false positives, um, there aren't many, but when there are cases of false positives, we actually follow up with ShotSpotter and help them improve their system as they move forward. Right. So that way we continue to reduce that number of, of right. um, false positives. The alerts by year on the top of that from 2310 in 2019 to almost double 4336 in 2022. Is that because we've added an array or are they from the same, how many do we have, three? Um, different different zones. Yes. Um, uh, off the top of my head, I think there are five unique zones okay. in the city. So are these statistics from 2019 from the same uh, as from 2022? In other words, we've had almost double the number of... Uh, I will double check the numbers for okay. the uh, implementation dates. I believe um, some sensors uh, we publicly acknowledged in 2020 in the downtown area. Um, so I believe there was an expansion in the downtown area at that time, uh, which likely accounts for a, a, a bit of the increase. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we also have to be honest about the fact that gun violence um, continues to be a prevalent issue yeah. in our city. We, we heard about that yesterday at council Absolutely. or before council. Thank you. And finally, this uh, the grant allocates $308,160 only to one of the zones? Is that uh, the, uh, I believe it's um, the 3.6 includes two zones uh, that are funded through grant funding. Yes. Um, I, can, I can confirm that for you. Okay. Um, so I was curious if this JAG grant 
is underwriting $308,000 for one of the zones, how are we covering the others? Is that general fund? The rest is general fund. General fund. Okay, thank you. Uh, that's all, Madam Chair. Thank you. Thank you, Councilman Cashman. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair. Matt, yes, following up on Councilman Flint, I, I had the same question, uh, what was meant by um, cover the subscription cost related to an existing shot spotter location. So if you could let me know when you uh, dig that up, what that's actually referring to, I'd appreciate it. Yep, um, so we don't publicly disclose the exact location of our right. shot spotter locations. Um, uh, there are, I believe, five zones and two of them are covered, but I will, I will confirm that and get back to- Thank um, you. Uh, the other question is, um, I think it's slide two, um, where you're looking at the um, number of uh, casing, uh, casings found related to the uh, number of alerts that year. It seems it's between 15 to 20% of the alerts result in casings recovered. And, and I'm wondering if you have any idea, is that what we find uh, in other jurisdictions? So the, um, the total number of casings that we recover is quite a bit higher than this. This is just the incidents where the casings that were recovered had a Niven um, link. Okay. Uh, I can uh, ask our data analysis unit to look for um, total casings recovered on scene um, and provide that to council as well. Um, but we. Um, um, we are one of the only major cities that responds to every shot spotter alert. Um, and it's specifically for this reason, because we want to collect this forensic data and help link these cases for um, better solvability. So say that again, what percentage of alerts result in a, a casings being found? I'll have to look that up and get that to you. Okay, sir. great. Well, thank you very much, Matt. Thanks, Madam Chair. Thank you. Um, next council member, Gilmore. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, Matt, thanks for this info. Um, on side, uh, slide three uh, uh, as well, um, it'd be really helpful um, for you to break down and send over to council um, when there were those expansions um, of the service so Absolutely. that we can make sure we're, I feel like we're looking at apples and oranges here versus apples and apples because there was an expansion. And so you would deduce that your amounts are gonna go up probably. And so that would be helpful to um, have that delineated out when the expansion occurred. And so um, out of the 4336, um, the 4,336 times that ShotSpotter was alerted, is that the number of times that officers were deployed? Or is that the number of times that the system sent an alert Yes, so that is the number of times the system has sent a uh, confirmed alert to the department, to our officers, and we respond to every single one of those. Okay, so one, one resident or one geographic location then, depending on how many times a weapon is discharged, that could account for eight times that ShotSpotter was alerted to a geographic area but it would be one time that officers were deployed. Is that correct? Um, I, can I restate your question to you and mm -hmm. make sure I'm clear? Okay. Um, are you, are you um, I, I suggesting that the 4336 is multiple alerts, but within multiple alerts could, is just a single event? How many times <clears throat> were uniformed officers deployed? 4,336 times. Okay, so they. So when we, get the, when we get the alert, we're notified of the location 
uh, were notified of the number of uh, rounds that were fired um, and uh, its timestamp. Okay. So you're, look, you're looking at, so within that, you could have multiple alerts from a particular event, um, but it's, it's not, the same event's not captured multiple times in that year. Okay. All right. That's helpful because I, I want to really understand um, if it's the number of times a weapon is fired. No. Um, and, okay, great. So um, uniformed officers were deployed um, 4,300 times, a little bit over. I would like to know how many times the officers actually came in contact with human beings, with a potential suspect, with people in the area, who they talked to, et cetera. And we should have reports on that. And I would like you to further delineate that information if they came into contact with anybody, if there was a report generated and how many um, of those individuals were juveniles because that should be in the report, if a report was made, yes. how many times it was um, a juvenile who was contacted. Uh, and then a follow-up question to that is, if it is a juvenile that was contacted, what happens to that juvenile after that contact? And so um, would, would like to get a little bit more information uh, around how we're deploying officers um, and just drilling down into the data a little bit more. So that, that would be really, really helpful to have. Absolutely, Councilwoman, I'd be more than happy to provide that. Um, and then also, um, as many of you are aware, if you have shot spotted in your area, you get quarterly um, um, data from the Department of Safety um, uh, providing updates on number of incidents, things of that nature. So, mm -hmm. but I'd be more than happy to um, get that for you. Okay, great, wonderful. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Um, next up, Council President Torres. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Matthew. I have a few questions for you. The term of this contract is different from the general fund uh, funded contract. Is that is that right? Uh, the grant period is for two years. Um, for this particular, for this particular funding. Yes. How does that um, align with the contract that we're funding for the general fund? Because um, the term of this contract ends September 30th, 2025. Mm -hmm. The one we approved in 2021 ends in December of 2026. Right. What are we what are what are we supplementing? Uh, so general fund covers um, a large portion of our annual contract. This covers a percentage of it. Um, like I said, this is a formulaic grant that we get every single year from the federal government, and every single year that ShotSpotter is part of that package. And so we we take a portion of this award every year. Um, and the awards overlap. So we still have um, 2020 and 2021's awards open and they're in the process of being closed out. Um, and so they just stack up on each other and overlap. And those are per sensor or per area? Per the per, JAG award? No, I'm sorry, the contract that's covered by JAG versus the contract that's covered by it's General a, Fund. It's a single contract. Um, we just fund it through two different sources. Okay, why isn't the timing aligned with the contract of the general fund one 2020. Um, I couldn't speak to the, the reason why the contract goes through 2026. Um, I can just say that the it's a two-year award that the JAG award is a two-year award every single year. And so um, <coughs> city I know gets a benefit for having the five-year contract. We would be charged more if we went year over year is my understanding. Okay. Um, on, on this particular. Okay. Um, the data we received, um, that I received, comes to District 3, has ShotSpotter, um, shows an increase in gun violence 
in places where a sensor may not be located. Um, can you move them? Um, I mean, the short answer is yes, they could be moved. Um, I think the reality is, is that they are in locations that are persistently violent locations within the city where we see gun violence repeatedly. Um, and there's a lot of calibration that goes along with having to place and move um, the sensors. And so I don't know that it would be, uh, I don't know that that would be the most efficient means to your end, if, if that's the question. Um, because then you're essentially taking the resource in an area that still needs it and removing it from that to put it into an emerging area. Or the concentration of it to another area that may be emerging. What, one, of the re, one of the things that I struggle with on this is we end up on a map only because we have the sensors. There are other parts of the city that may experience gunshots as frequently that just don't have the sensors, so they never show up on the map. Um, yes, that's true. It's true to the extent that um, we are aware of more incidents because people aren't calling 911 in some of these areas, and so the, the alerts allow us to go and respond and um, help save lives, help improve um, solvability cases, improve forensic evidence access. Um, but when we look at emerging places to place these um, technologies and when we have those conversations with you all, uh, it's not based on necessarily just shots fired events. It's, it's violent crime, um, uh, non-fatal and fatal shootings um, that, that we're aware of. So uh, it, that's not the only factor, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So okay. we're, not, we're not using that one factor to continue to focus in on a particular area of the city is sure. what I'm trying to say. Okay. Um, <clears throat> district four and one covered council district three DPD districts. Mm -hmm. Do they have more personnel given the number of officers that are just res that respond to shot spotter alerts versus those that might respond to 911 calls? That's a great question. Um, we don't use shot spotter in our staffing model. Um, what we use is um, calls for service. Uh, we look at offense, uh, most serious offense codes and the frequency that those are occurring, the amount of time it takes officers to respond and clear those calls because you can imagine in far northeast Denver as an example, uh, the commute time is, is greater than it is in downtown or it is um, down in District 4 as an example. And so we have to weigh some of those factors as well. Um, there's about five or six things that go into how we staff um, the districts and it's it's fluid right that's why we don't say we have an exact number of officers that we are absolutely always going to assign to district four or district one or district three um, it's fluid based on the needs um, and what the, what the data shows okay thank you um, and then um, let me see actually I think that was my last question I'm good okay thank you madam chair Thanks. Um, Council Member Sawyer, I have a quick question, and then if you have a real quick one, and then um, we will um, try to close this out. Yep, I just had a follow-up data request, so go ahead. Okay, great. Um, so I just want to clarify what we're doing in terms of legally. So we have a contract obligation to pay for this service already. Correct. So if we were to not accept these funds today, we would still be obligated to pay for the contract, correct? That is correct. So if we were to turn down these federal funds, then the obligation would be to pay for this contract through what source? Uh, I would, we would probably have to come back and ask council for a supplemental 
um, to meet our contractual obligations. Right. So nothing about turning down these funds relieves us of an obligation this council has already approved. No, uh, council has already approved the contract that goes through the end of the year 2026. Um, we're obligated to pay that amount. Okay, thank you. I just wanted that to be on the record before yes. we um, take the motion for this. Um, Councilwoman Sawyer, and then I will be looking for a motion and a second. Thank you. Thanks. Um, Matt, just a quick question for you. Council President Torres's questions uh, made me wonder because it's something we see in District 5 as well. Do you, um, not you, or maybe you, do, we'll does, the, does DPD aggregate data from shots water alerts from 911 calls from the code the incident codes that you flag and all of those different things into one piece of information the reason i'm asking is because we see in district 5 that there is a lot of gunfire but our residents call 911 so we can't get shots water um, it doesn't it's not the right use of it and expanding that contract would take other financing and there's lots of moving parts there so um so we it would be good to know whether like you guys do that i think it would be great to see a map of the city with all of that data aggregated because that would cover the questions council president torres and i have about places where gunshots occur but there is not a shot spotter yes I, um did i just make a lot more work for you no i'm, I'm trying to um I will get you the information that I have about um, the different factors that we consider when we're looking at staffing um, uh, and when we're looking at placing recruit officers. Um, and if that's not sufficient, please just let me know. Okay, is that appreciate okay? it. Is Thanks. that fair? Yep, that's okay. great. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Madam Chair. Thank you. I have a mover, Councilman Flynn. I have a seconder, Councilmember Sawyer. Um, do we need a roll call vote on this? Um, I believe we might. Um, we have uh, Council Member Sedebaka is on Zoom, and I want to clarify, do we need a roll call vote on this? Tim, are we, um, can you, is, okay, oh, okay, sorry. So um, uh, we have, um, we do have some members who are non-voting members. So of the voting members of committee, we are not seeing there's any need for a roll call vote at this point. Okay, so at this point, this moves forward um, to the full council. Thank you very much. Great, thank you. Um, all right, next item up is um, a presentation Matt is also leading, and that is, and, and I just wanna manage our time. We've got about a half an hour for this item as well, since we have a third item so this is also the Department of Safety, um, sorry. Um, item 107, 23-0107, uh, um, Youth Crime Prevention and Crisis Intervention Grant. Great, thank you, Madam Chair. Um, uh, with me uh, today for this presentation is Pat Hedrick from Department of Public Safety's Youth Programs. Uh, we also have representation from uh, Office of Children's Affairs and um, one of our community partners on this particular award. Uh, this is one of the three grants uh, that was funded last year by Senate Bill 22145. Uh, this one, as you can see here, is the Youth Crime Prevention and Crisis Intervention Program. Uh, we are asking today as part of Resolution 23107 to approve this grant agreement with the Colorado Department of Criminal Justice for $1,045,813. Um, and it's to develop a multidisciplinary approach, um, working with uh, uh, youth, providing services to youth at six pathway uh, Denver public schools. 
also load that. Good morning, members of council. Pat Hedrick with Public Safety Programs. Um, I'm going to apologize. We should have probably bullet pointed this to make it a little bit easier to read. But as Matt mentioned, this program is really about creating a multidisciplinary team approach. So what this program is funding is uh, mental health services. Oops. Uh, mental health services, substance misuse services, violence prevention, crisis response, um, as well as a safe passage uh, program looking at not just what happens on the campuses and around the CLA village, but also what happens out in the community uh, when the kids are coming to or from school uh, as well. Um, so this really piece of it, as Matt mentioned, this is one of just three new grant programs that came out. And I think it was about seven and a half million dollars that was available through this particular fund. And with us receiving over a million dollars, we're really excited about the opportunities that this presents uh, with this school as well, too. Just a little bit of background on how this kind of came about. So uh, many of you have supported the work of the Youth Outstretching Action Table uh, that Melissa Shop is, is overseeing, and we certainly appreciate all your efforts. Part of that role is to be a support, not only for city, but also community-led uh, violence reduction efforts. This was a situation where the city's role was really as more of a convener and a support and less about trying to guide and lead something. Um, the CLA folks, and we have uh, Principal White here from CLA, um, they had this proposal together. This is something that they've been working on. This is something they've identified as a need for their campus and the village that uh, includes these other schools for quite some time. And so our role as a city uh, was really about how do we help support this effort? And so using our collective resources, one, it was about how do we, can we help support right the actual grant application, which DPD provided that support. OCA, Joey Pace, and Felicia Rodriguez were really instrumental in pulling everybody together because this was a quick turnaround time. This was a really quick grant to come together. So it was nice we had not only a program in place, but also all the key players around the table. So as this came through, Parks and Recs, Public Safety, Children's Affairs, everyone has really come together to help support this program moving forward. The grant period, as you see here, it starts on January 1. It will run through uh, June 30, 2024. This is a new grant period, and we do anticipate, or we hope at least, uh, that they will continue to fund this pilot grant uh, beyond just uh, this initial period. Um, these are the CLA Village partners. These are the Central Pathway Schools. If you're not familiar with Pathway Schools, 95% uh, of the students that are attending these schools must meet certain at-risk criteria. Um, so I believe the overall population of these uh, six schools, at least in 2022, was right around seven to 800 students total. Probably about 20% of them are justice involved. A higher number of those kids obviously have been exposed to trauma, uh, domestic violence, abuse, these types of factors, habitual truancy that really create challenges uh, for them in their educational pathway. All of these schools are about uh, within about a three and a half mile radius of each other. Some of the schools are uh, about a block away from each other, so it's close by. And the village itself lives on the CLA campus. And Hannah Pelican, who's back here, is with the CLA village uh, as well, too, and can certainly speak for Mr. White uh, more to the schools than, than what I can. The partners around this um, are both city partners, as we mentioned, but also community partners. Um, we have uh, Joe Aragon from the Mix, who's here. Uh, many of you probably have, have worked with Joe over the years and his efforts to do crime prevention work in the city, violence interruption work as well, too. So we're excited that he's on board. Uh, Resolute Counseling, Riley Cochran is back here as well, too. Um, they'll be providing some of that mental health support uh, for the program. And then we have uh, Crystal Clear Counseling and Coaching. He's going to be doing some of the substance misuse counseling. They weren't able to make it today, uh, unfortunately. 
Um, and then Matt, I think this is passed back to you. And so what we were looking at was creating uh, holistic support for at-risk youth in our community. Um, the small part that Denver Police plans or um, participates in in the operations of this grant is the uh, creating safety school or safety plans for each of the schools involved, um, providing direct mental health um, and substance misuse counseling to students and families through our partners, providing trained trusted messengers and violence interrupters outside of school hours uh, to deconflict um, and de-escalate situations. Uh, and to support students and families who are navigating the judicial system so they better understand the process that's in front of them. Um, and then there's also a bit on gang intervention and general de-escalation um, for the students as well. Uh, the grant goals and objectives. Uh, the first goal is to successfully um, engage identified students in the village mental health services and our substance misuse services to um, increase access to those uh, for those individuals and their families. Um, and the objectives obviously are to improve that engagement both in school, um, school performance, school success, school attendance, um, and then uh, the pre-trial and probation uh, expectations for those involved youth, uh, and increasing the number of students receiving uh, substance misuse and mental health counseling. Uh, goal two is successful crisis intervention uh, to prevent crime through restorative justice interventions. Um, again, this is that safety planning and de-escalation interventions um, that I mentioned. Uh, we plan to hire an education, court, and community partner liaison to assist students and families uh, re-entering re the educational system so that they can be successful uh, and provide safe passage in areas outside of school hours um, when youth aren't being monitored uh, in that particular setting. Goal three is increasing student engagement in the educational setting for the pathway schools. Again, we're looking at improving the school attendance uh, for these individuals. Um, and looking at providing summer employment resources and support identified pathways um, to keep students engaged uh, when they're not in the classroom, which has been a focus of the city um, for quite a while. Uh, the overall outcomes for the program, uh, what we're looking for is improved access again to mental health and substance misuse counseling to individuals and their families who wouldn't otherwise have um, this access, uh, improved communication on the judicial process so people are aware of um, uh, how to properly navigate the system uh, and then interrupting and de-escalating uh, potentially violent events uh, to reduce um, reduce harm in our community. And with that, we'd love to take questions. Thank you, Matt and team. Um, first up, Councilmember Gilmore. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, this is really exciting. Um, and so um, thank you to the school representatives for being here as well. Um, I. I had a quick question about um, goal number two and how you're going to accomplish that or what that looks like. And um, especially the objectives of providing safe passage in areas outside of schools during hours when youth are not monitored. Um, we've had instances in Montbello um, when, you know, the bell rings, um, there's some beef that's been going on for a while and 2.30 to 3.30 is kind of that time when we've seen things happen. And so um, we'd just like to understand um, how you're going to accomplish that safe passage or what that looks like. Or if I'm thinking about this from the wrong perspective, please correct me. But, um, and especially if we're depending on our nonprofit partners or school partners that maybe don't have the training, um, especially around that de-escalation, nor have trust 
built up in the community, especially with young people. And so we'd just like to understand that a little bit more. Yeah, sure. Thank you for that question. And I, I think with the safe passage piece, it really is trying to find those opportunities before, after school, where we know that uh, there might be kids might be a little more vulnerable. Um, with this approach, part of what we're also looking at too is how do you make sure that we are um, engaging the right folks at the table? And I think we do have some different partners that are experienced in some of this work, folks like Joe and other folks that have some of that experience around de-escalation and, and whatnot, have a connection with the kids. I think to your point, um, we're, we're not looking for necessarily city employees to go do this. It's really trying to connect with the community. And we built in a budget, um, I think that's representative of that need. I mean, we, we we're really clear about like, if we're asking people to do this, we need to pay for it. And we need to pay, you know, a, a, a decent wage for it. So I think we're looking at about $40 an hour roughly for this. Um, the idea would be to set it up so that we have about 12 hours of coverage per week during those times uh, after school. Um, as far as measuring those outcomes, part of that's gonna be coming back to even talking with the youth and seeing, is their perception of safety changed? Um, I think one of the hard things is, and Joe can certainly speak to this uh, more eloquently than I can, is that sometimes it's hard to prove prevention and that, you know, yes, we stop this from happening or we stop this. But at the end of the day, if the kids are coming back and we're talking with Mr. White and others and saying, I feel safer, then we know it's working. So there'll be some outcome measures uh, such as that. But certainly we can also work with DPD, I think, too, to look at, you know, crime rates around the areas as well, too, to see if there's a fluctuation during those times or not. Okay. All right, and then um, I, I appreciate that, Pat. And then um, around the um, the mental health and um, substance misuse counseling. So um, this grant term started January of this year. We'll go through June of next year. Um, what are the expanded, I guess, partnerships that you've built out um, so that somebody doesn't get their five or six therapy sessions? And then it's like, okay, we've helped you as much as we can and there's no warm handoff. There's no yeah. place for folks to go. And the going rate now to pay out of pocket for therapy is between yeah. two and $500 an hour. Um, and that's even if you have insurance because right. you've got to get to your deductible before right. they'll even start to cover. So talk yeah. a little bit about the expanded services or partnership. Yeah, sure. And I think the other issue that we're seeing as well, too, is sometimes it's even hard to get people in. I know for us in the juvenile justice system right now, getting kids into some of the trauma services, support services, sometimes can take two to three weeks, if not longer. I think part of this is about by creating this multidisciplinary team, everybody brings something to the table and is able to support it in a different way. So for instance, if that young person maybe needs some additional services beyond what's offered in these schools, we have a voluntary program that we could certainly be there to help support them and connect them to the right resources in their community to support that and pay for those services if that's what's needed. So I think through our different partnerships, we'll be able to develop that sort of network where there isn't that just, okay, good luck, hope it works out type of approach, but more of less a warm handoff to somebody that can help support them long-term. Okay, great. I appreciate you thinking about it um, from those perspectives and look forward to the continuing reports on how this goes. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you. Next, Councilman Cashman. Yeah, thank you, Madam Chair. Pat, good to see you. Thanks for your work on the uh, action table, for sure. Um, and it's kind of in line with what Councilman Gilmore was saying. Is, as uh, Chairwoman Kanich mentioned, this committee is in the midst of a three-part uh, series on addiction and recovery and substance misuse. And in the first session, uh, Dr. Thurston at, at Denver Health talked a lot about uh, the struggle with not having trained providers, 
not having enough psychiatric nurses, et cetera. So what I'm hearing you saying is you're kind of running into the same situation. Yeah, very much so. Um, we had a conversation with some of our uh, providers uh, probably about six, seven months ago. Um, and the issue isn't necessarily money. It's right. you could give us money, but we can't find people yep. right now to do the work. Um, finding bilingual clinicians is a huge challenge that we're facing and continue to face. So um, unfortunately, it's kind of popping up in multiple areas, but I think we've tried to create that support network so that we can identify where we're going to find those gaps and see how we can support that moving forward. Um, you know, the other piece, too, is looking at maybe sort of your non-traditional forms of counseling and therapeutic interventions. Um, we actually just trained a, a large group of community members to facilitate the Hoban Noble curriculum, which is sort of a rites of passage kind of curriculum. And while it's not a therapeutic intervention, there's restorative piece to it. And so we're trying to find programs like that that are evidence-based and shown to work that can sort of be not a replacement for maybe more you know, intensive counseling and things like that, but can serve as that um, engagement opportunity to get the family into some sort of services right now while we try to identify where those deeper end services are moving forward. Yeah, I appreciate that. It just kind of shines uh, an even brighter light on the, the discussions about approaching public safety from a public health perspective and how great that need is to recreate an industry that has been losing a whole lot of folks. Well, and I think the beauty of this is, again, these services are going to be delivered where these kids go to school. Right. So they're not having to take 10 buses or whatever to get there. It's right there in their school. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Madam Chair. Thank you. Next, Councilmember Sawyer. Thanks, Madam Chair. Um, thank you. This is a really exciting program. And I know um, that when the school board made the decision to remove school resource officers from schools, it left a gap. Um, for a number of students. And although our, the data shows that, that, that there are less justice-involved kids now, um, what we also see is I'm a parent, right, uh, of teenagers, and what I see is that there are way more fear and way more fights and way more threats and way more people doing lots of things in the bathroom that they shouldn't be doing and all the stuff um, than there was, you know, four years ago. Um, so I'm wondering, this is a fantastic program that I'm very supportive of, wondering what um, the Denver public school system, what part the Denver public school system is playing in this, because they're a separate entity from us. They have their separate elected officials, their own separate charter, their own separate budget. Other than the fact that we both have Denver in the name and we try and partner as best we can, we are two totally different programs. So it feels a little bit like this should be something that is funded by Denver Public Schools. Um, they don't have the funding for this, so I'm thrilled that we have found an alternative way to do it, but I'm wondering what their role in this is. Yeah, I, I think in part, um, I know Denver Public Schools has a process they have to go through when they're applying for grants and whatnot, sort of like the city does with caring for Denver, where you know you have to submit and hope that you get ranked high enough to get to apply. And so I mean, we are hopeful that through this project, we'll be able to demonstrate that by having these community and school-based services, they are seeing a difference. To me, this also sort of um, dovetails a little bit with what DPS is doing around their community hub sites and to try and create those pathways where uh, families and kids can you know, access those services within their own community and utilize these school sites for more than just you know, uh, school services during the day. So I think their role is really to um, 
one, help, help us out in that respect to say, if this program is working and it's successful, one, how do we keep this one going? But two, how do we replicate it moving forward? And I think working collectively together to identify whether it's grant opportunities or you know, more dedicated funding opportunities to support this is gonna be key. I know for our office, we have staff in six different high schools right now, in part because of the removal of SROs. The school's reaching out and saying, we need something else to be out here. Can you guys help support us? But doing from more of a you know, restorative approach, more of we wanna keep you out of the juvenile justice system, so how do we intervene now? And I think that's the other piece about this, this particular grant too is gonna to be helpful is it's helping us identify those kids, maybe those earliest points possible where maybe there's some issues popping up and how do we get services now, but also how do we avoid criminalizing behavior that in many cases isn't criminal behavior. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And I think it's really important. Um, one of the things that we, so George Washington High School is in District 5. One of the things that we have seen is that there's like a path behind GW High School. Um, it used to be that the school resource officer after school would go there to make sure that whatever was is now going on wasn't going on. Um, and our residents have started to complain about, you know, just having really negative interactions with um, with the students that are there. And our, of course, our police officers say, we don't want to do that because then those students, we don't want to go there because those students will then become justice involved because it's off campus, right? Which we, I appreciate very much. Um, there's balance here, right? But uh, I do think that expanding a program like this would be an extraordinary benefit um, to all of the schools because there is a gap that is left there. Um, and we see it, I see it in District 5 all the time. Um, so whatever I can do to help be supportive of that, please let me know because this is a really fantastic opportunity for our kids. Yeah, and I think this is something too where again, I, you know, obviously the city is a big you know, entity, DPS is a big entity, and sometimes quite frankly, we're not sure what they're doing and we're not sure what we're doing. So part of this and a lot of the work of the action table has really, how do we align our resources better? So how do we know what everybody is doing so that not to say you can't come into our lane, but you know, use your turn signal so we know you're coming over and we can try to work together and figure out how we support this because I think what we're clearly seeing, I think what was said last night at council meeting by some of the folks from East High School that I saw also too was, this isn't a DPS issue, this isn't a city issue, it's our issue and how do we address it collectively. And so um, DPS will obviously have a, a key role in helping move this forward. Okay, really appreciate that. And uh, I know we all work really closely with our school board members just to make sure that there's a line of communication open. So if you need a line of communication, let us know. Appreciate that, thank you so much. Thanks, thanks Madam Chair. Thank you, I guess I'll just jump in. I think the theme that I'm hearing from my colleagues, I guess, is um, you know about scale. And I guess the other question I wanna just build on is sustainability. So just let's start with the grant itself. So I, I don't know that I see this in the slide deck. How many years is the grant for? And, and what, just help me understand again why we're the applicant. So these are state dollars. And they're flowing through us through the city. Were we the only eligible applicant? Or what, what determined us as the applicant here? No, that's a great question. Thank you, Councilwoman. Um, so it is state funding. Uh, it's for 18 months. Um, it's the initial award is this first six months um, for the, um, the third fiscal year. And then it continues for another 12. So it's 18 months. Um, the reason the city and specifically DPD is the applicant for the grant funding is because we had the resources. Um, we were all at the table. It's part of the Youth Violence Prevention Action Table. It's part of the community meetings we've been having. Um, Councilman Sandoval um, was at one where we met some of these partners. And um, 
we had community members that said, we really want to do this, we really want to go after this, but we don't have the capacity to put together a competitive application. We don't have the capacity to administer um, an application like this. And this is where an this presented a great opportunity for the city and specifically the police department to say, um, we'll partner with you on this. Um, we'll get out of the way. We will support the community organizations that are already in these locations that are already doing the work that already have trust of the community members. We will simply support you um, and put together competitive applications so we can do this work because we believe in it. Um, the hope is that we can show proof of concept and then look for more stable um, funding sources. But I think um, my hope is that we will continue to see these um, competitive grant funds that we can go after um, as a community um, to try to support our youth um, and, and continue to build on hopefully it will be a very successful program here in these 18 months. So, um, so this particular grant does not have renewability that we know of? No, we would have to apply um, for another cycle of, of competitive funding. Okay. Yes, please just introduce yourself. Thank Good you. Good morning, council members. I'm Melissa Yanishevsky, executive director for the Office of Children's Affairs, and I apologize, my voice has been going in and out. I wanna just uh, answer a few of your questions <clears throat> because our office is involved in this grant for multiple reasons. Uh, one is that our office is trying to think about sustainability for youth mental health services and supports. We're um, in the process of hiring a mental health coordinator that is gonna help drive that sustainability plan for our office. And we plan to support this initiative once the grant expires. And we're trying to build out a team within our own office. And secondly, DPS is one of our closest partners. They've been at the table with us for several years, which is really exciting. Um, and I meet with the superintendent and his leadership team on a monthly basis. And we cover a lot of the aspects, <coughs> excuse me, of our work, not just in our office, but what's going on with young people, particularly around mental health and youth violence. And then third, uh, our office reinstated the Denver Children's Cabinet in January and DPS is at the table, part of the executive team in those meetings. And so what we plan to do is build a subcommittee that focuses on DPS, our relationships between the city, our responsibility and our accountability to one another. So I just wanna throw that out there so that you have a, a better understanding of what we're doing behind the scenes. Excellent, thank you so much. Um, so I think, um, I guess, so you all were the grant writers just from DPD. We have a set of grant writing contracts. JBA used to be that contractor. I don't know if it still is, but no, they don't. So we do we do this all in-house now is, is basically the... I'm yes. hearing yes from OCA. From DPD, we have an in-house grant administrator okay. um, that um, handles about a $13 million portfolio. Okay, got it. So then I guess um, in terms of this question then of scalability, I think, um, Pat, you were, you, know, you were answering a lot of questions to my colleagues about this question. And I think, um, I think it's, you know, the, we had this spreadsheet that council members had asked for, which was, you know, when we get these questions, what is the city doing? about youth violence prevention or what is the city doing about you know people who are vulnerable right and it's very difficult to answer that question when you have you know we have you know what is this it's three five oh, i'm counting two three four five six fte is that the total for this grant if i'm adding it up together is that right matt um. 
two, three, five, five and a half. Is it? We have one of them part time. So, so five-ish FTE spread over a number of schools, right? So this is a, a relatively focused program. It doesn't touch a large portion of the city, but then we have other grants in other schools, right? You, it starts to become difficult to describe a system approach, right? When you have pieces of grants that are 18 months here. And, and, and so help me describe systemically, right? That you, you, you know, you describe this as coming out of the youth um, prevention. I'm, you have an acronym, the, the YVEPAT, the Youth Violence Prevention Action yes, Table. But so mm -hmm. I know you describe this as wanting to do proof of concept, but mm -hmm. this is not the first or only grant. So, so really, <laughs> I mean, why would you describe this as needing as needing to do proof of concept? We've been doing a bunch of other things for for youth violence prevention. What do you think is new or different about this sure. that you would consider as needing proof of concept? Sure, uh, I'll defer that specific question to Pat. Um, what I'll say though, generally, um, we do this a lot in the police department when we look at alternative responses as a great example. Um, each alternative response is slightly different. We try to show proof of concept um, and scalability with each of those as we build them out with community uh, partners. Uh, and, and this is no different. And so it, things broadly fit within the vision that the mayor set out with the Youth, Viol Youth Violence Prevention Action Table, where it's city supported and it's community led. Um, this is just another variation of that, another um, unique um, system, another unique um, application of a broader vision. Um, but what this is different from other youth programs that I'll defer to Pat on. I think probably one of the, the differences to start with is the fact that there are so many different partners at the table in that multidisciplinary approach. I think when you talk about like different grants and programs in schools and whatnot, and like we have a Caring for Denver grant that we partner with a couple of schools on, but it's a couple of schools. Because again, bandwidth becomes an issue as well on what we can scale up. And I think to the questions that you've got presented, I think you know when we're always looking at grant opportunities, one of the first things I always think about is sustainability. We can build this wonderful thing, but if we can't sustain it, then what good are we doing, right? And so I think one of the differences here is it's, it's bringing all these different folks together to have a concerted group to really work towards this issue. Um, I do think that we are still, in some cases, especially with the district, siloed a little bit from time to time. Um, and so finding these opportunities where we have the ability to work, you know, not only with the school, but then also with uh, the different departments within DPS themselves. So whether that's behavioral mental health department and bringing in those support services as well, we are really trying to take a multidisciplinary approach. I think in the past, we've somewhat done that, but have also kind of let people off the hook, if that makes sense. When they stop coming to meetings, you know, like, oh, they're not coming anymore, that's okay. With this group, this has been an ongoing process and, and everybody has really invested their time and energy into this. And I think when we talk about scalability, um, <clears throat> looking at like maybe the community hub model, I mean, trying to do things in individual schools is, really a challenge right and it's not just about that but um schools have to be willing to let people come in there and unfortunately mr white is the type of principal that says we we want help and we want support and we know that we can't do it all ourselves so i think one of the things we may have to look at is how do we take more of a regional approach in some respects um because trying to say we want to put a mental health counselor in every school i know when they talked about the um, sros being removed out well, we're going to take that money and we're going to invest heavily into um, social workers and, and counselors and whatnot. 
but that money gets you about five or six of those. That's it for 200 and some odd schools. So I think one of the differences is we're taking that more regional approach in this respect. But, and I agree, it's a small piece. It's, you know, what, 92,000 students and we're talking about 800, but we're talking about a very vulnerable population. And so that's what that other focus is to on that piece. Great. Um, I'm gonna, okay, I'm gonna go, and then I'm gonna go to Councilman Cashman with the last question. Real quick, Matt, and then Councilman Cashman. Uh, absolutely, um, and you all know this through the budget process that we go through every single year is that um, we have to show proof of concept for these new ideas. And the way at least the police department does that is we find um, outside funding to show that a program is successful and, um, and we're reaching our, our goals and objectives before we come to this body and say, we think this program is something that we sustain long-term. Um, we provide that data through those, those pilot projects. Thank you. Councilman. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, I was gonna make a bad joke about adding to your workload because I worry about you not working enough, but I know you're working real hard, but I still wanna add to your workload. I, I think in this discussion being uh, so front burner for everybody, we need some sort of a document that I can show to people when they say, what are you doing about youth violence? I agree with you. Um, the Youth Violence Prevention Action Table launched during the pandemic. Right. And so what our office is doing now, because we're the anchor organization to house all of this work, is that we're wrapping up an updated status report on all youth violence prevention efforts in the city. Great. So this is a multi-sector approach. We have updated our strategies. We are updating, it's essentially gonna be a roadmap to show you where we're going in the next couple of years. We want this to be sustainable and outlive the current administration because it's so important. And we've been asking for a lot of things for quite some time. And I think because we're coming out of a pandemic, some of the emerging issues that youth are facing today are really urgent. And so we wanna make sure that this document is um, essentially taking us into the right direction. So I anticipate this report to be done the first week of March. We're wrapping it up right now. Great. And we're, I'm happy to share that with all of you once it's complete. I look forward to that. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you so much. That will be very welcome. All right, I have a mover, Councilman Flynn, a seconder, Councilman Cashman. Um, are we good moving this forward committee? We are, nods of nods, thank you. Okay, our last item then comes from our housing department uh, host, Housing Stability, and it is a contract with Salvation Army. So we'll be switching presenters, moving to item 23-0173. Thank you to the Department of Safety and Office of Children's Affairs for being here. And to our guests from the um, uh, Denver Public Schools that were here, thank you very much. And uh, for the partnerships. I don't know how to do this one. Everybody did great on time management today. Uh, good morning. My name is Midori Higa. I am the director of homelessness resolution programs with the Department of Housing Stability. And today we're sharing about the Salvation Army Connection Center. So the Connection Center started in 2015 as a call center to provide information and referrals uh, for folks that were experiencing a myriad of things, housing instability, food instability, um, homelessness, and they've quickly grown into an access point for services and shelter. Just as a note, the call center, the connection center really uh, supports not just 
the metro area, but also supports the whole state and the state of Wyoming. Um, so they do a lot of different things there, but they will soon be a centralized access point for all family emergency shelters in Denver. Um, and we've been contracting with them since 2021. They originally had an 18 month contract for about $480,000. Um, and so this is an amendment to that contract to extend and add additional funds. So the Connection Center, um, is the, their role is to provide a clear, well-known centralized access point for people who are at risk of homelessness or experiencing homelessness and to minimize the spent time their time spent calling lots of different places or going to lots of different locations to obtain support or services. And our hope is that this creates a more efficient and equitable sheltering system. And so their role would be to screen households for rapid resolution and um, other homelessness resolution to divert them from shelter if that's at all possible. And then they would make the appropriate shelter referrals if that's necessary. So at this point, they've really worked to coordinate with other uh, partners to be that centralized access point for family shelters. So currently, they are the access point for Family Promise of Greater Denver's shelter, uh, their own Lambeth Family Center um, through Salvation Army, and the Family Motel for VOA, and then uh, our Family Non-Congregate Shelter Program, which should come to committee next week. And they're also working to partner with Catholic Charities um, Samaritan House um, as another uh, shelter option in their pool. So this coordinated response delineates in-person and virtual access points. It allows people to go both to the Connection Center if they want to show up in person and then they can call or email. Um, this creates that opportunity for rapid resolution and diversion and has a universal eligibility and wait list. So that increases, increases efficiency and equity across our system for folks that are accessing shelter um, and this creates stronger collaboration through our Family Solutions Working Group. So just that scope of work is to provide direct referrals to shelters, establish a universal wait list and universal eligibility, divert appropriate households from entering literal homelessness, and enroll appropriate households into our coordinated entry system, One Home. Um, and so our ask today then is for the approval of our amended contract um, for a total of $800,865 and a new end date of 12-31-23. Any questions? Very fast, we'll give our colleagues just a minute to see <laughs> if anyone has a question. I do have a few folks coming in. Councilman Cashman is first. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, so we're talking about family shelters. Correct. How many family shelters do we have? So um, as I presented in the last presentation that I did, uh, briefing for council, so these are our primary family shelters on slide four. So Family Promise of Greater Denver, mm -hmm. Salvation Army Lambeth Family Center, Volunteers of America, and then the Family Non-Congregate Shelter Program, gotcha. which used to be our contract motels. Um, so those are the ones that are in our pool. Thank you very much. Yep. All right, next up, Councilmember Sawyer. Thanks, Madam Chair. Um, thank you. I went and toured Lambeth last week with the Salvation Army, and um, it is such a fantastic program, and they have such high success rates. Yeah. Um, their percentage of success um, is extraordinary. So um, I'm just curious whether 
I know that they have land out in Council District 3, uh, Salvation Army does, and I know that there is a plan in place to um, build a significantly larger Lambeth-style family shelter out there that um, there's a big funding gap there. Is that something HOST is um, having conversations with Salvation Army about? I don't think I'm the best person to speak to that, so I'm not going to answer the question, but that's information that we can get you from our housing opportunity team. Okay, I'd really appreciate it because it's really important, and, and if, if you look at the percentage success rate for the family program for yep. Salvation Army, it is extraordinarily yeah. uh, more successful than any other program that we have so far. So, um, and way above the percentages required by the federal government. Um, so it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, Councilmember Council Torres would like to chime oh, in. Oh yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Mike on. Um, Host is a co-applicant with Salvation for some state funding okay. um, to help cover some of that gap. So Host has definitely been at the table with them. Awesome. I yeah. really appreciate it because it's, it's really, I'm sure it's in your district. You've seen it. It, it will be amazing. Yeah, it yeah. will be amazing. Um, so really appreciate that. Just curious about um, the actual call center number. So one of the other conversations I had last week on this tour with Salvation Army is their number is not listed on Host's website as a resource or it wasn't anywhere I could find um, and I have never seen their number before so as council members we are told send residents who are um, in need of assistance to 211 and 211 will will um, help sort it out. Um, I had an experience just before the holidays with a worker um, whose pregnant wife and he were living in their vehicle mm -hmm. um, and to try and find them um, shelter because she's pregnant, so she, family shelter would not work for them, um, was extremely difficult um, and ended up taking hours for just one family to be able to find shelter not in their car. Um, so I think, I guess, concerns about 211 um, and the success of that program, and um, also if this is a direct call center number that directly connects residents to housing. I wouldn't say to housing, that's- <laughs> Or to a wait list or, to, yeah, so that's so, what I'm asking. Yeah, I the guess, connection how does that center work? is a resource and referral center, right? So they're able to connect folks to resources and referrals for whatever they're looking for. And that can include shelter. Um, their number is listed on our Find Shelter page on the host website. Um, it is not listed as the Salvation Army Connection Center because we are working through all of our contracts right now. And so that it's not, and finishing and wrapping up RFPs. So we haven't been able to say the Salvation Army Connection Center on the webpage, um, but that number is on our Find Shelter page. Okay. With those hours. That's great. Mm -hmm. um, but if the Salvation Army is focused in this case on providing family shelter and it's not branded on the website, then uh -huh. there's a gap there. Because yes, so they support if people everyone. know, go to the Salvation Army, right? And yeah. it doesn't say the Salvation Army on the website, then that's a gap for our users. Yeah, and that's not that's a gap that we can't fix until our legislation goes through based on procurement rules. So that's part of it. Uh, but they support everyone, not just families. So right. anyone can call the Connection Center for support. And if we're getting asks from the community about who should we send this person to, we typically refer to the Connection Center because we find that to be a reliable source of information and referrals. Okay, really appreciate that. Thanks. Yep. Thank you. Um, I have Council President Torres up. Did you have a separate question? Okay, great. 
Um, I actually had a question that just built off the last um, conversation. So I was a little confused about, um, so they are a centralized access referral center for a number of users, but we're contracting with them just for family shelter. Can, can you help sort out what they do for us versus what they do for others and how that works for me, please? So the Connection Center is a resource for anyone in the community um, that's seeking out support. And again, that's for housing instability, food instability. Um, they can even provide referrals for substance use treatment. Uh, and so that's really for anyone. Our Connection Center contract isn't, isn't specific necessarily to families, but it is a large part of our family shelter response, right? So in this contract, they are forming themselves to be that centralized access point for family shelter, in addition to all of the other things that they do. So we're not saying that our money only supports those families that are calling into the Connection Center, but supports Denver residents or folks that are in need of support that will be served in Denver uh, to, to gain access to the supports that they need. So it's not so limiting, but the slides describe how we're um, enhancing the work that they're doing so that it really does help create additional solutions for our family homelessness. So help walk me through, are we, are we just paying to make sure there's enough call takers or are they literally, for example, keeping alive I think of referral as like, here's a phone number, call it yourself, which is very different than I have a live list of which beds are open and I am literally slotting you into a bed, which is a very different kind of service. Which are we paying for with this contract? So both. Um, so um, the there is a sense that like if folks call they're able to get a number to a place where they can obtain the thing that they're seeking so if that's food or something like that um or how they might be able to access a walk-up shelter for an adult individual right like that is there but they also provide some short-term case management for folks that are calling and needing like more support than just a phone number or a resource, right? Like we know folks need a variety of different interventions and sometimes a number isn't enough, like they really need to be walked through a process. Mm -hmm. And so they do have the availability um, to do and provide that support. So the contract includes uh, funding for the call center director, a services coordinator, case managers, um, and an interim supervisor as far as the staffing pieces go. So I guess what I'm um, trying to get clarity on is, so will a Denver resident who calls get a little something that a resident of another community that's not funding them for additional services will get? Uh, no, we don't try to parse out our funding in that way, right? Like okay. folks in need are folks in need. Okay. Um, and so this is just funding that we provide to the Connection Center in okay. order to provide services and ensure that Denver residents have access to support as well. So we're enhancing the level of services beyond what they would be without our funding. Without right. our funding, they might just be giving out phone numbers. With our funding, they're providing a little more case management. Correct. Can you get back to my question though about, in are they managing family shelter beds for us? I, or so I just this particular yeah. contract is not, but okay. things that come next week will explain that more. Right, because when you were here in December, mm -hmm. we talked, I think it was December, right? Yeah. Our last <laughs> meeting of the year, yeah. 
you talked about a more coherent system, yep. right? It wasn't just, um, we weren't doing these vouchers anymore. We right. were doing a more coherent managed system for family sheltering. And so, um, and so that system, I just, I'm trying to understand how this piece fits into that system. I'm not understanding yet. I'm sorry. So that's okay. For I your think patience. It's, yeah, it's because uh, we have legislation that will come through next week that okay. sort of builds on this particular contract and talks more about that intake piece okay. um, for family shelter. So I apologize that I'm not able to go into those okay. details right now. So would you say that this piece is not very important for that system? Then it's 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 not very integral to that system. The next piece is more integral to the system of family sheltering. No, I don't want to say one thing is more important than another, right? Like okay. all the puzzle pieces fit together in a way to create that systemic response. And so the funding for the connection center is equally as important as any legislation we have coming through in the coming weeks related to family non-congregate shelter. Um, this is just a different take on it, and it was an existing contract that's still living in its own existing contract rather than what's coming through from our procurement. I'm struggling. So if I'm a family in need of shelter, yeah, why would I call this provider versus the contractor coming next week? It's the same contractor. Okay. All right. So, um... Okay. <laughs> Perhaps we made a mistake in separating out the timing of when we were bringing these then, because it's confusing. I think it's very confusing to understand how these pieces are fitting together. So I guess what I'm going to just do is let it go. And maybe we should have talked about that before we did these separately. I, guess. I apologize. And I'm happy to come back next week and tie it all together. Okay. Maybe we'll just, we'll trust and we'll do that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, anybody else? I don't have any other uh, members in the queue. And so with that, I have already a mover is Councilman Flynn again, and Councilmember Sawyer is a seconder. Members, are we good moving this forward to the floor? Okay, sounds good. Family sheltering is moving forward. Um, this with a uh, contract for 23-173 for the Salvation Army Call Center. Okay, excellent. With that, we have a number of items moving forward on consent. This uh, committee is adjourned. Everyone drives safely if you are in a vehicle today and our bus riders also hopefully will ride safely and uh, we are adjourned. Thank you. <laughs>